Jeremiah 28. Previously on table, we have been looking at the life of the exiles a little bit and made the point that I believe and many people believe that the church in the culture that we are living in is a community of God's people living in exile. We are not in a community that supports or agrees with the values and the life of God that sees God as irrelevant. And we are a community living in that culture with the, the calling to bring life and to bring hope and to bring truth and to retain our identity even in a hostile environment. And the first week we looked at the fact that one of the things that was important for the exiles Whenever they were in Babylon for 70 years, one of the things that was so important to them was that they told their story again and again and again and again. And they did not lose the knowledge of who they were in God. Particularly the great story of the Exodus. That, that, that fashioned so much of their thinking. And then last week we looked at the fact that exiles are defiant people. Not disrespectful people. Not people who refuse to you know, acknowledge authority and leadership in culture and in society, but people who defy what society tries to press on them. And I looked at three things in particular, three defiant statements that we saw in the lives of Daniel and Azariah and Hananiah and Mishael, who all had their names changed. We saw the defiant statement, I won't allow you to change my identity. I won't allow culture around me to hang a name or a label on me. I will get my identity from Jesus. We also saw Daniel saying, I won't defile myself with the delicacies that are offered on the king's table of this culture. I won't defile myself. And again, both Daniel and his three friends who declared, I won't bow down to you. I won't bow down to your idol. I won't pray to you. I will not worship your gods. So exiles are a defiant people and today I want to look uh, a little bit about how exiles live within the culture that they're in. How do they conduct themselves? So we're, we're in Jeremiah and I want to start, I'm going to linger in chapter 29, but I just want to point out a first point in chapter 28. So if you go around about halfway through verse 1. I'll just read all of verse 1 and, and, and go on. In the fifth month of that same year, the fourth year early in the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azur, who was from Gibeon, said to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon, Within two years, I will bring back to this place all of the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. That sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds like the sort of message we want to hear. And that sounds like the sort of message we do hear sometimes in a lot of places in sort of contemporary Christianity. 
In two years you'll be brought back. In two years you'll be revived. I'm going to break the yoke that the king is putting on you. And people all rise and say, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. That's what we want. Because that's a stirring, encouraging message. But the problem is this. Hananiah, who gave that message, is a false prophet. And false prophets tell people what they want to hear. Instead of telling them what God is actually saying. A little bit further on in the chapter, Jeremiah says to Hananiah in verse 9, the prophet who prophesies peace. In other words, the guy who always says that everything's going to be fine and God's going to show up and this is going to happen and that's going to happen and it's all going to round out really, really quickly. The prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. So I can imagine Jeremiah and Hananiah having a conversation. And Hananiah has just declared all of this is going to be over in two years. God's going to break the yoke that Nebuchadnezzar's put on you. And he's going to bring all his people back to Jerusalem. And I can imagine Jeremiah getting out his iPhone, opening his calendar, scrolling to two years in the future from that day. And putting in a little reminder on that day, meet Hananiah for coffee. To see if his prediction has come true. And I would say when that day came. Hananiah was hard to find. Because people will always wheel into the middle of the lives of God's people. And declare things that are popular. And that are nice. And that are encouraging. But ultimately are not true. Jeremiah puts the people right In verse 10 of chapter 29, Jeremiah says, this is not a two-year thing. This is going to last 70 years. Now, that's not the news you want, but that's the truth. Jeremiah was not a popular man ever with anyone, really, to be honest. He was the weeping prophet. He was hated by so many people. But he says, just forget the two years thing. Forget the lies that it's all going to be okay. This is a long haul. 70 years is how long this captivity will last. And he has another word for Hananiah at the end of chapter 28. He says in verse 15, The Lord has not sent you. You have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. You have preached rebellion. Folks, do you have the discernment to know when somebody is preaching rebellion? I don't know about you, but it's so easy to listen to something good. It's so easy all the time to gravitate towards what you want to hear. And with the the host of sort of preaching and teaching and stuff that's available, particularly on the internet, it's so easy to just feed yourself with continual ear-tickling nice things that make you feel good. Or somebody comes to town who has a a sort of prophetic ministry and you know when you go and listen to that person, they'll tell you something that'll make you feel good. They'll never challenge you. They'll never poke you in the chest and say, I don't know that everything's quite right at the minute. Always, as as Paul said to Timothy in in, uh, 2 Timothy 4, he said that, that, let me just read it to you so I get it right. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul warns Timothy about what people will do in terms of the teaching and the preaching that they'll listen to. He says says to Timothy in verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. Be faithful to the word. 
And then in verse 3 he says, A time will come when men and women will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to say. Turning their ears away from the truth, they will turn to myths. And surely that's the case. We turn and we listen to what makes us feel good. And when somebody challenges us, when somebody gets in our face a little bit with the word of God, I don't really like them, don't really like that place anymore. They're unsettling me a wee bit, a bit harsh. So we'll just moodly along somewhere else. Until two years later there, something will happen that will annoy us and then we'll move on somewhere else. And this is what people tend to do. The message or the, or the, the, the lesson that we've got to learn from this interchange between Hananiah, the false prophet, who just fills people's ears with what they want to say because he wants to be popular, and the message of Jeremiah, which is the truth, is that you need to be careful when you're living in exile, which the church is, you need to be careful who you listen to. You need to be very careful who gets ear time with you. Who is speaking into you? Both in a preaching and a teaching capacity, in the books that you read, in the podcasts and sermons that you may listen to, just the voices that you give weight to in the world. Who is getting into your ears while we're in exile and bringing you the true word of God And not just coming along and tickling your ears and saying, oh, everything's going to be fine. Everything will be fine. Whenever the new heaven and the new earth is established. Whenever the king returns. Whenever everything is fully consummated. Whenever every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything will be fine. It'll be fantastic. But between now and then, everything probably won't be fine. And it's a long haul. And you need to be careful in the meantime who you listen to. And Jeremiah tells the people how they ought to live. He sends a letter to them in chapter 29. I want to just linger on that letter for a few moments this morning. Chapter 29 verse 4. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. Um, Whenever the exiles were carried away to Babylon... Jeremiah wasn't brought with them. They hated him. (laughs) And I think Jeremiah maybe was left in Jerusalem because the king of Babylon realized everybody hates this guy. He must be a total loser. We will just leave him in Jerusalem because he obviously has nothing to bring and nothing to offer. And Jeremiah is left in Jerusalem with a few religious folk who, who have totally misunderstood everything that's happening. They think now that those people have gone to exile, God's got rid of all the bad people. And we've been left behind and we're going to be okay. And if it wasn't for this pesky Jeremiah poking us all the time, everything would be great. But Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem and he writes this letter. And from verse 4 of chapter 29, this is what he says. I want you to listen to this. This is how God's people are to live in exile. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage 
so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We'll go on a wee bit further in the chapter later on. But some very simple advice that Jeremiah gives. Build houses and settle down. I have this thing that I do sometimes that's really ignorant. (laughs) And I I do it to one particular individual that that will remain nameless and is not in the room. Um, If I'm a a bit fed up with a conversation and I want a way, I get up. It's horrendously ignorant when I think about it. But there's one or two people that that talk for too long. (laughs) And you just realize, I'm not getting anywhere here. I just need to get out. And I have this thing where I'll get up and stand with my hand on the door handle (laughs) in in certain offices and rooms. And, And trying to give the message... I'd really like to get out of here now because I'm done here and I want to get away. And if you will be quiet for more than three consecutive seconds, I'm out like a rocket and back to what I want to do. And I was thinking about it and thinking that that's actually horrendously ignorant. But is that the way sometimes the church lives in the world? Do we live with one hand on the door handles if to say, you know what, we're, we're out of here really soon. We're going Uh, We don't really care about you. We don't really want to listen to you. We don't really want to engage with you and settle down here. One hand on the door because as soon as that door opens, we're gone. We're out of here and and you lot, you know, I I think controversy point number 73. I, I, I think the idea of the church all vanishing someday and a whole lot of people being left behind is profoundly unbiblical. And you cannot find it in the scriptures. You can't find it in Revelation. You can't find it in 1 Thessalonians 4. You can't find it in Daniel because it's not there. And maybe someday we'll do something on that. But it's a controversial place to go. But I think some very bad teaching about the end has caused people to think the church is all going to disappear someday. Planes are going to fall out of the sky. People's clothes are going to be left on the chair. And everyone's going to vanish. And the world's just going to rot in the hands of Antichrist. I don't, I don't buy that. But I think we live sometimes, like we believe that, because we live with one hand on the door handle saying, we're out of here, folks. As soon as this door opens, we're gone, and we don't really care about you. And Jeremiah says to the exiles, tell you what, build houses, settle down, and actually get yourself established and rooted in the place where God has brought you to. Settle. He doesn't say pitch tents. He says build houses and make yourself part of the community That I have moved you into. And God repeatedly says. I have carried you there. I have carried you there. I have put you there. It was not anybody else. Settle down. That's not a call to assimilate ourselves. And become like the culture. That is a call to infiltrate the culture. Alright. Just get me in this. It is not a call to become like the culture around us. It's a call to infiltrate it and live in it. Jesus said we're to be salt and light. And I've talked about this before many times. But the salt, you didn't put the meat at one end of the worktop and a jar of salt at the other end of the worktop. That did not preserve the meat. What the butcher did was he got the salt, he shook it all over the meat and he put his hands on the meat and he literally massaged the salt into the meat with his thumbs in order to preserve the meat. 
And Jesus says, that's you in this rotten culture. Stop distancing yourself from it. Stop living with one hand on the door handle, hoping, hope, hoping that you'll hear a trumpet and everybody will disappear and actually be in the culture and be in it and stop the rot. Prevent the corruption. Stem it and stand against it. So make yourself at home. He also says in verse 5, plant gardens and eat what they produce. I take that to mean work. Work hard in the culture that you live in. Work. Don't be a parasite on culture. Plant, grow, and eat what you produce. That is work. Folks, we are designed in the image of God. We are designed to be creative. We are designed to be constructive. We are designed to be productive. We are designed to work. It is part of who we are. It is part of the commission that God gave to Adam and Eve way back when in the garden to work. And if we don't work, we will be tremendously frustrated and dissatisfied because something in us will not, a need that we have as human beings will not be met. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we all have to get paid. I'm not saying we all have to get paid. I'm saying we need to be constructive in our lives with what we do with the time that we have. Working and producing. Not necessarily paid employment. That's not what I mean. What, what are we doing? Each of us, what are we doing with the time that we have control over? There are certain periods every day that you don't control. That you can't do anything with. There's a fixed schedule that is there because of work and because of sleep and because of other things. There are certain times that you don't have a lot of control over. But the time that you do have control over, are you doing anything constructive? don't mean working yourself to death. I don't mean workaholic. I don't mean two hours extra in the office. I just mean, are you faffing away the hours that God has blessed you with? Or are you being productive? Plant gardens and be productive and eat the produce. I'm not telling you, you all have to be gardeners as well, so don't get me wrong. But are we constructive in our time? Plant gardens, eat what they produce. If a list of of the hours spent was, was sort of flashed up before us on, uh, on the screen here. Hours spent this week on YouTube. Hours spent this week on Netflix. Hours spent this week on phone. I have an app on my phone and it's fantastic. It's called Moments. Does anybody else have the app called Moments? <sighs> dear, dear. It keeps a track of how many times you lift your phone. It keeps a track of how many minutes you're on your phone for each day. It keeps a track of what percentage of your waking life is spent on your phone. And it's really quite alarming. It's free and it's good. And you end up having this little competition with yourself. where You're saying, oh good, I was on my phone for 37 minutes today. Tomorrow I'm going to get that down. I'm going to get that down. And you you walk past your phone and you're tempted to go and pick it up and unlock it and have a quick. And then you think, no, no, because this thing's counting the number of pickups. And it's, it's quite a good little way of discipline. That you're not faffing away the hours because it can be devastating to look at it and see one hour, 45 minutes. And you're like, what? One hour, 45 minutes of my 24 hours yesterday was spent with this thing. Are we being productive with our time? 
Or are we faffing away the hours? Do we have a work ethic? Not work on ourselves to death, but determined to use our time well. Paul said to the Colossians in 3.23, he said, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. There's a sense of accomplishment and achievement that comes with doing something productive. And just to stress in case you misunderstand, I don't mean paid employment. I learned the hard way during a few summers a few years ago just how difficult it is being at home with very young children. (laughs) And how delightful it is to see your spouse coming into the driveway at five o'clock and thinking, hallelujah, (laughs) you know, she's home because I have never worked so hard in my life as I worked in those days. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about, about everybody having a, a paid job. That sort of work with family is really profitable work. Investing in your children, investing in your home. But what I'm saying is, with, you know, Jeremiah says to the exiles, while you're in exile, don't be a parasite in society. Work. Do something useful. Do something useful. Do something constructive. I once had a fella tell me in school, and this is maybe 10 years ago, and I've never forgot it. <clears throat> I, was, I was mildly gurning at him one day because he wasn't working very hard and he said to me I don't need to work hard for my A-levels I don't need really good grades I'm going to Bible college and I thought my goodness is that really in the thinking of some of our young people I'm going to Bible college so I don't need to actually work hard oh dear 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 I read one American poet Sandberg was his name. He was quite harsh about a lot of things to do with preachers and preaching. But one thing he said was, I will not take any religion from any man who does not work with anything other than his mouth. And I think men, I think I speak for men in particular, I think men respect men who work. They respect men who work. They don't respect men who don't work. Another thing that Jeremiah says in verse 6 is, Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. From one of the things that I get from that is when you're living in exile, invest in long-term relationships. And I I don't want to just restrict this to marriage. But invest in long-term relationships. Get to know people for the long run. I sometimes really grieve for the lack of David and Jonathan style friendships in people's lives. It is so rare to see people truly devoted in friendship to one another for the long haul of life. It really is. Especially in Christian circles where we have such superficial relationships with each other sometimes. Invest in long-term relationships. Don't just get to know each other flippantly. Don't again live with your hand on the door handle thinking, well, I know you and I sort of, you know, to chat to the old time, but I'm not really that interested in investing in you. No, he says, long-term, long-term relationships with people. You're here for the long haul. And he says, increase in number. Increase in number. It's an amazing how that's the heart of God over and over and over again. Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. In the Great Commission, make disciples. God always wants his people to increase. 
to increase, to increase. That does not mean he wants his churches or his church to, to be in massive numbers in vast buildings. But he wants his church to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. More and more people. More and more people. And you know that our heart here is more to see lots of small communities planted rather than to create something vast in one place. Increase in number is what you want to be doing. In verse 7, he says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. You're not seeking to overthrow the city. You're not seeking to escape the city. And it's one of the things that I try when I'm down here on a Friday night. I try to change the thinking of the young people that come in here. They have a, a word that they use for tandrigi that I can't quote right here. But it ends with hole and starts with something else that's quite rude. And they say it quite a lot. And if you ask them, what do you think, what do you think of this place? This is, what, this is what they say. This is what all of them, you know, independent of one another, this is what flies off their lips. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Change your thinking. Change your thinking about the town, about the city. Do not, teenagers, do not have this attitude of, I, as soon as I can get out of here, I'm gone. Have the attitude, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to change it. And I say that to kids in school as well because I'm so sick of so many really gifted young people and they raised in Portadown and then they go to university somewhere else and they never come back. And I'm like, for goodness sake, come back and change the atmosphere. Change the culture. Invest in the place. Don't just run away and leave it. Bless the town. Seek the peace and the prosperity of it. Daniel was a blessing to Babylon. Joseph was a blessing to Egypt. Joseph basically said to Egypt, I can help you navigate the famine that's coming. And look, look at the position of influence that Joseph and Daniel both got to in their, in their respective cultures. Esther was a blessing to Persia. Jesus was a blessing, was he not? To the marginalized, to the outcast, the weak, the sick, the poor, the women that culture did not value, the children that culture did not value. He was a blessing. He didn't walk around for 33 years saying, guys, I'm out of here pretty soon. No, he blessed people. How do we bless the city? As I close, just a few things that we need to show the town. I want you to really listen to me here. How do we seek the peace and prosperity of the city or the town that we are in? One thing. These are things that we need to show people. And we almost need to make a promise to the town. We will show you what community looks like. We will show you what community looks like. Because so much of our world does not have any sense of community. Their community is found largely in a couple of places. Social media, which has its uses, but not very many. And reality TV, which is so far from reality that it's unbelievable. It is the greatest contradiction in terms you will ever hear. Reality TV, where a bunch of fake people are put in a fake situation to lead out fake relationships but you listen, we're just talking this morning about, about the way teachers and staff rooms talk about what they've been watching on television. You listen to people talk about those sorts of TV shows. They know everybody by first name as if they're talking about their friends. 
and this person and this person said this and this, and they talk about it, and you start to realize, hang on, you go home every night, you pour your glass of wine, and that's your community. That's your community. That, that fake environment that you're watching is your community. That fake community on your phone, that's, your, that's not real community. We will show you. We will seek the peace and prosperity of the town and the community by showing them what community actually looks like. And that involves love and it involves forgiveness. Jesus said, by this all men will know if you're my disciples, if you love one another. And Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, bear with each other and forgive one another. And yet the church is known to so many people as a place where people cannot get on with one another. Where they fight and they squabble and they hold grudges. I want to make a promise on behalf of Table to Tandriki. If you want to see what community looks like, look at us. Look at us. I want to do that. Real community. That is healing. I prayed earlier about healing community. Linda and I have for years held on to this sort of dream and vision of a community. And people are healed. And I'm not talking physically. You know, we, we do believe obviously in praying for the sick. But people are healed in their hearts. Just by being there. Just by being in the place and being in that gathering with those people, it is a healing environment to their hearts and their souls that have been crushed. And I want to be able to say to this town, do you want to, do you want to see real community? Do you want to come away from your little castle that you lock yourself away in every night after your day's work? And do you want to see community? Jesus had the perfect example of this. He, he, he pulled together 12 people and he picked a tax collector called Matthew who had sold his soul to the Romans and a freedom fighter called Simon who was basically a paramilitary fighting against the Romans. The level of hatred that Simon the Zealot would have had for Matthew the tax collector before Jesus got hold of them would have been insane. And Jesus says, right you two, you're on board. You better start getting on. We're going to show the world what community looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what understanding different people looks like. In the midst of all of the fakery, we're going to show people love that Paul says in Romans 12, love must be sincere. Do you have a David Jonathan? Do we? Sincere friendship. So sincere that some liberal theologians have really badly misinterpreted it. Do we have that level of deep, deep commitment to one another? Or as we grow older, are we going to be incredibly lonely? Incredibly lonely. I want to promise this time we will show you what community looks like. We will show you what love looks like, what forgiveness looks like. We will show you reconciled relationships. Tom Wright says one of, the, one of the marks of true Christian community, one of the marks that they're really having an impact on the culture around them is reconciled relationships in the culture around them. So we want to show, we want to seek the peace and prosperity of the city and the town by showing them what community looks like. We want to show them what wisdom looks like. When did you last ask God for wisdom? Because that's a biblical command to ask for it. 
I ask for it a lot. I am painfully aware of my lack of it at times. Painfully aware. Asking him for wisdom. You know, I mention this because Jesus grabbed a word to describe his followers. And the word in Greek is ecclesia. And it is the word that is then translated church in the New Testament. But the word ecclesia was already in use before Jesus grabbed it. And let me explain to you what the word meant. There was a bunch of old guys who had handed over their businesses to their children and had retired and now had lots of time in their hands. And what they did was they gathered at the city gate and they basically sat there and sorted out everybody's problems. They, they would have gathered every day. I'm sure it was quite comical at times to, to view them, but they would have gathered at the city gate, sat around and talked. And if you had a problem, if you had some quandary in your life and you didn't know how to deal with it, you would go to these men and you would sit down and say, you know, there, there, and there's a dispute between me and my brother about our inheritance. Can you please help sort out this dispute? You would have gone to those guys because those guys were seen as having wisdom. They'd been around a while. They'd had a successful business. They'd now retired and, and they were gathering and blessing the town through their wisdom. That group of men was called the Ecclesia. And when Jesus uses that term, I think one of the things he means for his church to do is to exercise wisdom in the community that they're in. Wouldn't it be great... To be able to genuinely say it to the town, to the city. We seek the peace and the prosperity of the town and the city. And we have wisdom. We have a reservoir of wisdom. And if you need it, come and get it. Come and talk to us. Wouldn't it be great to be recognized in the community as people bearing wisdom about how to live? Do you think the church currently is seen that way? Because I think the church is seen as being irrelevant. But wouldn't it be great if, 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 let's say, a businessman out there had incredible struggles in business and was about to go under. Wouldn't it be great if he was to come along here and say, listen, I've heard that there's wisdom here. Can, can you help me? I have a real problem. Or a relationship that's tremendously strained and, and, and two people come and say, Do you know what? We really are struggling. But, but we've heard there's wisdom here. Can you help us? Wouldn't it be great to bless the town and the community with that sort of ministry? The ecclesia. And it's no longer the old men. Because Peter said the Holy Spirit is now poured out on all flesh. Old and young. Male and female. Rich and poor. Slave and free. Everyone. The Holy Spirit is poured out on everyone who has made the decision to follow Jesus. And that wisdom, he is the spirit of wisdom. That wisdom is available. Wouldn't it be great if the church was known as a reservoir of wisdom? And ultimately what we have to do, the third thing, we have to show them what community looks like. These are just a few suggestions. Show them what wisdom looks like. Show them what Jesus looks like. You will be my witnesses. Show them authentically because they think they know and they don't have a clue. Show them what Jesus looks like. I want to make a promise to this town. We will show you what Jesus looks like. You can make a decision about Jesus based on what you see in us. That's a massive thing to say. Massive thing to say. What can we do to bless this town?
that we are living in exile among in our culture. Could we help them to do business better? Could we look at how, how buildings are rented and how business is done and how the business community itself functions with one another? And could we, could we say, you know, we, 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 could, we could maybe help you with that? Not me. <laughs> Definitely not me. Every shutter would be down permanently if it was me trying to help local businesses. But could, could we do that? For, could we bless? Could we seek the peace and prosperity of the town by doing that? We have great schools in this town. Really good, and I honour them. There's definitely, from what we see, there's definitely a lot of older teenagers who are struggling academically. There's a lot of people here who could help them. Could we seek the peace and prosperity of the town by helping some of those kids to do better academically? Because if, if they can only just pass GCSE maths, they've got far better prospects. Could, could we do that? Could we seek the peace and the prosperity of the city by doing that? Bless it with what God has given us. Can we help strained relationships? Can we get alongside those who are lonely? Drive through the town sometimes in the morning. You see little ladies, little old ladies coming out of houses across the street and going across to buy their, their milk and their bread for the day and go back in and you think, I wonder, I wonder do you have any other engagement all day long or is that it? Is it the engagement you have with the, the guy that works in the spa? Do you have any other? Does anybody ever meet you in your loneliness? Could we do that? Or are we happy just to preach and sing? Can we seek the peace and prosperity of our town? Can we get a bit of a, a mental app on how we're using our time and be more productive? And I wonder, church, if we started to look inwards too much and if we've forgotten a little bit the community that we're called to. Jeremiah also says in verse Seven, that you're to pray for the city. You're to pray for the city. Every single person, get this. There is a call of God to pray for the city, to pray for the town. Do we do it? Do we do it individually? Do we do it corporately? Bless the city by praying for it. A great question to sort of analyze or evaluate the effectiveness as a church of a church is this. I heard this recently. Would the community grieve? Listen to this. Would the community grieve if we closed the doors and packed up and left? Would they grieve our, our loss? Because if not, then we're, we're doing something badly wrong. Would the community phone Nolan and say there's a church in Tandragee and they're closing and we want them to stay open, do something? Would they form some sort of active you know, group to, to fight against the closure or the moving on of this group of people? Because a church, I believe, if it's truly functioning according to what Jeremiah says and what the New Testament says, if we're truly living as the church in the community, there should be a tremendous grief if we were to ever move on. They should be begging us, don't go, we need you. How do we know what beauty looks like without you? How do we know what love looks like without you? How do we know what wisdom looks like without you? How do we know what peace looks like without you? Are we anywhere near that? Because <laughs> if we're not, we better start moving a wee bit more in that direction. To establish a place in people's hearts that they would truly grieve if we were to move on. And they would beg us to stay.
Because otherwise, what are we doing? Are we really representing God in exile? One last verse. You've probably, you've probably guessed what it is. Verse 11. The most misquoted, misused, abused, coffee-cupped, t-shirt-printed, poster-printed, flag-printed, misquoted. Bah, please. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. He doesn't say that to the ones who are in Jerusalem, yapping at Jeremiah. He says it to the exiles. He says to those people, if you will refuse to change your identity, if you will refuse to bow down to their gods, if you will refuse to eat the delicacies from the table that culture offers, if you will keep telling your story again and again and again, if you will build houses and settle down and work and be productive, if you will increase in number, if you will seek the peace and prosperity of the city, if you will pray for the city, I have a future for you. But if you're not interested in all of those things, stop wearing your Jeremiah 29:11 t-shirt. Okay? It only applies to those who are living faithfully in exile. It is not, it is not applied to every single person that ever darkened the door of a church. He has a future and a hope for his faithful people. And he goes on in verse 12 to tell them, call upon me. Seek me with all your heart. Seek me. And you'll find me and I'll listen to you and I'll bring you back. But that word only goes out to those who will live the way Jeremiah has told them to live. God at this time in history speaks everything to the exiles. The ones that stayed in Jerusalem who thought it was all going to be over in a couple of years and the good times were coming. He didn't have much to say to them. But there was another young exile named Ezekiel. And the very first verse of his book, he talks about sitting down at the river with the exiles. And in that context, he saw visions of God. He didn't pine for the old days. He saw visions of God. And what God had done was he had pulled out of Jerusalem a group of people and he had put them in Babylon, in exile. You will learn again what it means to call upon me. You will learn again what it means to live for me and to worship me. You will learn what it is to be an apostolic, missional people. And once you learn that, I'll bring you back. And I believe that's what he's doing in the church. I believe that the institutional church is in great danger. And I believe God is he's working in among all his people, but I believe he is saying to people in exile, you're going to learn again what it really means to be my people in this world. And you're going to learn what it is to call on me with everything you've got. And when you do that, believe you me, I've got a future and I've got a hope for you as the people of God. Let's pray. <clears throat>